Last week, we began walking through this passage in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, through the remainder of the chapter. And we kind of saw it as a kind of a mini-series within this letter where Paul includes just this rapid fire of bullet point exhortations and commands to the followers of Jesus that he was writing to, and by way of extension, by way uh, to, to us as well. Uh, we saw 30 exhortations in these 13 verses, just like one right after another, just rapid fire exhortations to us. And they represent the kind of transformed life that Paul says we're all to have as believers in Christ. Those who are following Christ, these are, these are exhortations that describe this transformed life that he said at the beginning of chapter 12 that we're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed. We're to be different. We're to look different. And, and so he describes here these 30 different ways in these 13 verses of that kind of transformed life. But they're not a means by which we make ourselves acceptable to God. We rejected that outright last week, and we must do so every week as we make our way through this. These exhortations are not a means by which we make ourselves acceptable to God. Please hear me on that. If you're new to New Branch, please hear me. We are not made acceptable by following these commands that Paul gives us here. That is only possible by God's sovereign grace. And that only belongs to those whom he brings to him by faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Instead, these exhortations are a means by which we are sanctified. That word sanctified, $5 seminary word for make holy. So they're the means by which the Holy Spirit makes us practically holy transforms us, if you will, so that God might be glorified in us and through us as we offer our lives to him as an acceptable sacrifice. We were mentioned, you might recall, Paul's purpose statement for these kind of practical exhortations in this letter that he gives later in the letter in Romans chapter 15. <clears throat> Verses 15 through 16 of Romans 15 say this, Paul says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. So he's reminding us of the kind of transformed life that we're to live. Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in, in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that, here's the purpose statement. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So that the offering of the Gentiles, which is us, so that, so that our lives might be an acceptable offering to God, sanctified or made holy by the Holy Spirit. So this means that the Holy Spirit uses passages like this to conform us to the image of Christ, to make us look more like Jesus, so that we collectively and individually, so that our lives would be an acceptable offering of praise and worship to our God who deserves it so much. And so as we read and study passages like this, we need to do so expectantly and prayerfully, asking that the Holy Spirit would affect these kinds of transformations in our heart and lives so that our lives would be that acceptable offering of praise to the God 
who made us for his glory and deserves glory from us so much. Now this section, uh, verses 9 through 21, and, and we may have touched on this last week, is, is it resists kind of a tight outline. And it's difficult to determine where to start and stop our study and where to start and stop individual sermons. I, I suppose one way of doing this could be uh, to take just one Sunday and cover all 13 verses, cover all 30 exhortations. But I fear that if we did that, we would be going too quickly and we might miss a lot of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. It's easy to skip over a passage like this and to, and to go over it rather quickly because we read these rapid fire exhortations and say, okay, yeah, I gotta make that list. And I gotta start doing those things. And we forget that this is the means, these reminders are the means by which the Holy Spirit is changing us to look more like Jesus so that God would be glorified by his church. And so why in the world do we want to speed through this too quickly? But I think we, all can, we can also go to Slowly, John Piper took 13 weeks to go through these 13 verses. So that's, that's, that's fine if John Piper is your pastor, but John Piper is not your pastor, so we're going to go a little bit more quickly through this. Um, John MacArthur um, explains the form of this passage in a way that I think is very helpful by using the imagery of an ever-widening circle. So, so the circle starts small in verse 9, where Paul ex- exhorts us, with some very personal things. Uh, let, let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So those are things that are, that are personal characteristics about you in verse 9. Then in verses 10 through 13, which we begin to unpack this morning, Paul widens that circle to include those within the church, within the body of Christ Then in verses 14 through 16, he widens that circle even more to include those that are outside the church. And so in verses 10 through 13, he's talking about how we're to live this kind of transformed life in relationship to people within the church. And in verses 14 through 16, how we're to be transformed in how we love people even outside the church. And then in verses 17 through 21, he widens the circle even more to include those that we might call our enemies that are evil and, in fact, even violent to us? And how are we to be transformed as Jesus followers in our love for even them? So this morning, we're looking at this first widening of the circle as Paul moves away from describing just the very personal characteristics in verse 9 to now including exhortations regarding how we're to live this transformed life among one another in the body of Christ, in the church. And so the setting that I believe we're to understand these verses that we're looking at this morning is us, the church, the body of Christ, and and most specifically, our local church, New Branch, those with whom we're in covenant relationship with. This is the context in which we're to live these things out. So let's read verses 10 through 13 and then seek to unpack it. This is the word of God, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, 
and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would use these bold reminders from the Apostle Paul to effect change in our heart to, in a very literal way, transform us to look more like your son, Jesus Christ. But God, not so that people will look look at us and say, wow, what great Christians. But so that people would look at us and say, wow, what a glorious God they serve who has transformed us from sinners into saints from enemies into your very own children. May we make you look better to a lost and dying world by the way in which you transform us through these very words that we seek to understand this morning. So Spirit, speak to us, not just in our head, but in our heart, not just in our heart, but in our will, in our very spirits, Show us where we are falling short in these exhortations and encourage us to trust in Christ who is in us to effect those changes. We ask that you would do this for your own glory. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So verses 10 through 13, 10 exhortations. Last week we covered three of them in verse 9. There's 10 of them in these four verses, and we're only going to cover the first five in verses 10 and 11 this morning. There's just too much here for us to go too quickly. And again, the theme here is living a transformed life in relationship to one another in the body of Christ. Next week, we'll look at the second half of these in verses 12 and through 13, and then the following week, We'll we'll look at the exhortations that deal with how we relate to one another outside the church. And then we'll close that up, close out chapter 12 in verses 17 through 21. Looking at what Paul says about how we're to relate to our enemies, if you will. Those who are evil and violent against believers. So I mentioned there, there are 10 exhortations in these four verses. But... I actually think that the translators got it right when they divided these 10 exhortations into four verses. Now, we should remind ourselves that the verse numbers in our copy of the Bible that we hold in our hands are not inspired. They weren't a part of their original writings. They weren't part of, Paul didn't say, you know, verse 10, you know, do this, do this. Verse 11, do this. Um, He just wrote a letter. Uh, The verse numbers were added later by the translators so that we would be able to locate together where we are in the Word of God. Go to verse 10. And so we have to be very, very careful about using the division of the individual verses in seeking to interpret Scripture. But at least in this case, I think the translators got it right. So while there are 10 individual, if you will, exhortations in these four verses, verses 10 through 13, I want us to look at them by verse, and as we do so, we'll see four loose groupings of exhortations, two of which we'll cover this week in verses 10 and 11, and two we will cover, Lord willing, next week in verses 12 and 13. So the first is verse 10, which says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing 
honor. Now, the grammar, the Greek grammar of verse 10 is very similar to verse 9. In verse 9, we noted that the subject and the predicate of that sentence, of that verse, was found in that very first clause, let love be genuine. That was the subject and the predicate of that sentence. And that was modified, that phrase was modified by the following phrases, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So those phrases um, that came at the end of verse 9 were telling us how we ought to let our love be genuine, by abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. We, we find the very same sentence structure in verse 10. The subject and predicate of the sentence, verse 10, is love one another with brotherly affection. And then that is modified in the second half of the verse by a participle phrase, outdo one another in showing honor. That's a phrase that we might be tempted to treat as an individual exhortation, but the grammar here shows us that it's a participle. It's, it's really, how are we to love one another with brotherly affection? Well, by outdoing one another in showing honor. So let's look at each of those phrases and seek to understand what is Paul saying here. First of all, love one another with brotherly affection. The word for love here is not the same as the one we found for love in verse 9. There it was the word agape. Here is the word Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is a combination of two Greek words, phylos, which means friend, and adelphos, which means brother, which is why the city of Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love, because that's what the word means. And so he's talking here about a brotherly kind of love, familial love, a love of commitment and devotion. And it's very interesting the way this opening phrase of verse 10 is constructed. Literally, the word for brotherly love actually comes first. When we seek to interpret it in English, we put it second. But it actually comes first in the Greek. Literally, it's in brotherly love, be devoted to one another. Be committed to one another. Which is why perhaps some of your translations, New American Standard or the NIV, translate this as be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Paul wants his readers to adopt that early Christian mindset that the church is a family and that the relationships that we have with one another in the church are to be like brother and sister relationships because we're all related to one another. We are family. Now, we've already been exhorted in verse 9 to let our love be genuine, right? To let our love be as we learned last week, without hypocrisy. But now Paul says that our love for one another should be like the love of a family. Now church, I wonder, I wonder what it would look like if we all in this room who called New Branch our church, if we all loved one another as family, what would it look like? Now, when we talk about loving one another as family, uh, not everybody has the same family experience. Not everybody has the fa- same family background. You might come from a family that is very loving, very caring, very committed to one another. Or you might come from a family that's not like that. And so we have to be careful to understand God's design for familial love and not our own experience of what family might have been. 
according to God's design for family. Family are those for whom you are responsible. And they are those that you are responsible for. Family are those whom you know that you can count on, no matter what is happening. And they are those that know that they can count on you. Family are those to whom you can always come back to because it's, it's family. It's home to you. Family should always be a place where you are loved, where you are encouraged, where you are kept safe, but also a place where you are challenged and, if need be, disciplined. Family is a place where you're known. Not, not just the you on the outside, but the real you on the inside where you're known and where you know them. I think and I fear that something about this kind of familial love is easily lost in the 21st century church in America. And yet, Paul exhorts us, church, to be devoted to one another, to be committed to one another in brotherly love. So what is the Spirit telling you? What is the Spirit saying to your spirit as you are exhorted to be committed to one another, to be devoted to one another in the body of Christ in brotherly love, in familial kind of love? What is he telling you about your devotion to your brothers and sisters in this very church? Paul goes on in the second half of verse 10 to add that participial phrase, modifying how we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love by outdoing one another in showing honor. <clears throat> now, what does it mean to show honor? <clears throat> the word for honor means to value. It means to value or to esteem. So when we honor someone, we are showing them how much we value them how much we regard them, how much we esteem them highly. It comes from a root word, which actually means to pay or to, to pay back. So the idea of showing honor is that we ought to pay others what they deserve in valuing them and esteeming them highly. This is why we use the phrase in our own vernacular to pay our respects when we're referring to what we should do when we want to honor someone, whether in life or in death. When, when we're paying our respects to someone who has died, that means that we go to their funeral and we honor them. We pay our respects. If we're paying our respects to someone who is still living, that means that we show them that we esteem them highly. We regard them and, and value them highly. That's what it means to honor someone. When our kids were younger and they would spend sleepovers at somebody's house, we would always try to teach them that when, they, when we come to pick them up the next day, they're always to go find the parent and thank them for letting them stay there. They're to, they're to pay that honor to them. They're to pay the respect back to the parents because they deserve it. <coughs> Excuse me. Honor is something that is paid because honor is something that is owed. Paul's going to talk more about this in, Rome, in Romans chapter 13. In Romans 13 verse 7, Paul says this, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. 
respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. So honor is paid to whom it is owed. So the obvious question then is to whom do we owe honor? To whom do we owe honor? We're reminded of the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment. Children, honor your mother and father. Children owe honor to their mother and father to show them that they hold them in high regard, that they esteem them highly. And of course, they will obey those that they hold in high regard. So children owe honor to their mother and father. We all owe honor to those who are older than us. We owe honor to the elderly. Um, Leviticus 19 verse 32 says, you are to rise in the presence of the elderly. Honor the aged. But then the apostle Peter also tells us that we're to honor everyone. He says in 2 Peter 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. See, honor is not something that we only pay to those who do something for us. It's something that we do, as Paul says, to one another, to show one another that we value them, that we esteem them highly. Not, Not because of what they can do for us and not because of what they will do for us, but simply because of who they are. I think that's why he's referred to brotherly affection in the first part of this verse, because we're family. According to Paul, each one of us ought to show honor to each other one of us, that we owe honor to each other in this church. Not because they're gifted in a certain way, Not because your personalities seem to just really mesh with them. Not because you have fun with them or like them for a certain thing. Not because they give a lot to the church or because of anything that they do. Simply because they are your brother or sister. Because they are family. If you have a child, if you have a brother or sister, if you have a mother or father, if you have an uncle, if you have a grandmother, you will honor them. You hold them in high regard. You esteem them because simply they are family. Not because you'll inherit something from them. Not because they've done something nice to you. But because they're family. You honor family. And I believe that's what Paul is exhorting us to here. That we ought to honor one another in the body of Christ in this very same way. Now, Paul doesn't give us any detail whatsoever as to what it looks like to show someone honor or to to show someone that we value them or esteem them highly. He He doesn't paint a picture, but I don't think he has to. Because you and I know full well when someone is honoring us, right? We intuitively know that. We know that they are esteeming us highly. We know that they consider us important We know what it feels like when someone is showing us honor, and conversely, we know what it feels like when they're not, right? And so I think the best way for us to evaluate how we're doing with this exhortation is to humbly ask ourselves, do the people around us feel like they're important to us? Do the people around you, specifically that God has placed you in covenant relationship with in the church, do they feel like they are important to you? 
Now, I think we need to mention a caveat here so we don't get too far off base. This is not about being held hostage by, by this, and it's not about letting people sin or pandering to their selfish desires. That, that if, if I was really important to you, you'd let me do this, or you'd do this for me. That's not what this is about at all. But in the confines of covenant community and the body of Christ, do those people around you feel as though they are important to you? Do they feel honored by you? I would submit to you this is one of those questions that really we can't answer for ourselves. But within the confines of that committed community, perhaps in your base group, just with one another in the body of Christ, allow them to speak truth to you. Do they feel like they're important to you? Do they feel honored by you? How are you doing in loving one another with brotherly affection by outdoing one another and showing honor? Now, we need, to, we need to remind ourselves that it's not just to show honor. He says here that we're to outdo one another in showing honor. That's what the second half of verse 10, verse 10 says. Outdo one another in showing honor. The New American Standard puts this to give preference to one another in honor. King James says something similar in honor, preferring one another. So which is, is it, preferring or outdoing? It means different things, right? So there's some disagreement here as to whether or not we're to outdo one another in showing honor or whether we're just to prefer one another in honor. To prefer someone else in honor is to place them before yourself. And certainly that is a Christianly mindset that Paul himself exhorts us to do in some of his other letters. But to outdo one another in showing honor, I think, means something even bolder than that. To outdo one another in showing honor speaks to almost a competitive nature, a a leading by example mentality, taking the initiative to show honor. So I take this to mean that we ought to take the initiative in showing honor to one another, that we ought to lead out in this, that we're not to sit back and wait for someone else to honor us. If we all did that, what would happen? Nobody would ever honor anybody, right? But if we all took it upon ourselves to be leaders in this, to be the first to show somebody else that we value them, that we esteem them highly, then my, oh my, how the Lord would be glorified in our midst because this is countercultural. Our culture is all about honoring self and regarding self as important and esteeming self highly. But Paul told us at the beginning of this chapter, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Live differently, honor others, and lead out in that. Take the initiative in that. Be an example in showing honor to other people. Now let's move on to verse 11 where we see three more exhortations. There Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal, Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So these exhortations seem to have to do more with our individual walks with Christ, right? So so as, as Paul is widening this circle of exhortations to include those within the body of Christ, he doesn't lose sight of the fact that the Lord is transforming us on the inside. And it's not so much about what we do, but about who God is transforming us to be. And so he's continuing a focus on personal character as well. He says we're to be transformed into people who are not slothful in zeal, but instead are fervent in spirit 
and who serve the Lord. What do each of, the, each of these phrases mean? The first, do not be slothful to zeal, in the New American Standard is translated as not lagging behind in diligence. King James, James says not slothful in business. So what does it mean to be slothful? We all know what a sloth is, right? It's that, I don't know, half monkey, half bear looking thing that lives in trees in Central and South America. Best way I know how to describe it. But what are they known for? Going really slowly, right? That's what sloths are known for. They're known for being very slow. Now, I think it's safe to say that Paul had no clue what a sloth was. He lived his entire life in the Middle East and Southern Europe, and that part of the world had not even been discovered by his part of the world yet. So he didn't know what a sloth was. He didn't have that animal in mind. That word simply meant to him and to his readers, slow, to go slowly, to hesitate or to delay. And he tells us, don't be slothful in zeal. Now, zeal, oddly enough, could really be considered an, an antonym. It almost means the exact opposite. This word means diligence, to, to do what you're going to do with haste, with diligence, without delay, without hesitation. But what's the context for this kind of zeal? In, in what are we to be without delay? What, what does Paul want us to do with this exhortation? What's the, what's the form of application here? I think that's answered by the second half of the verse where he says, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Just as we noted with verse 9 and 10, the same is true here in verse 11. Paul uses a subsequent participial phrase to modify the action or the exhortation in the first half of the verse. Both of these phrases, be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord, are actually participial phrases. Literally, it's being fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. So this describes how we are to not be slothful in zeal. So the Greek word for fervent, it's only used two times in the New Testament. It's the word zeo. And it literally means to be hot as a result of bringing to a boil. That's what it means, to be, to be boiling hot. So it's literally about a liquid that is boiling hot. But in both of its New Testament uses, as well as a lot of its uses in classical Greek literature, it's used metaphorically to refer to an intensity of emotion, whether good or bad, positive or negative. One could be described as being boiling mad, or boiling angry, or one could be described as being boiling hot in love. We use a, a similar vernacular in our own English today. Or one could be described as, as being boiling hot on fire in their zeal for whatever it is they're, ze they're zealous for. So we're not to be slothful, we're not to be slow or delayed or hesitating in our zeal. But instead, we're to be boiling hot. We're to be on fire, if you will. But in what? What's the context for our fervency? Some commentators link our fervency to the exhortations that came previous to this. The general exhortation of letting our love be genuine. And while I do believe that Paul most certainly would commend us to love one another with fervency and zeal, I don't think that's what he's getting at in this verse. I think he tells us what we're to be fervent about 
and what we're to be zealous for in the last part of verse 11 when he says, serve the Lord. This word for serve, it's Paul's favorite word for himself when he's referring to himself as a servant, as a bond slave, the doulos of God. That's what he likes to refer to himself as, this this bond slave, that he's no longer a slave to sin, but now because of Christ crucified and resurrected, he has taken on the happy yoke of being a slave of Jesus Christ, serving him alone. So I think the exhortation of verse 11 is speaking to us about our need to serve the Lord with diligence and zeal, to not delay or hesitate in our service of Jesus. When serve, right, because he's our audience of one, and he's the only one to whom we offer our lives as a, as a sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice. But when we serve Jesus, Paul's saying we're not to be like sloths. Moving slowly to obey, hesitatingly, delaying. Instead, we are to press on in our service of the king with fervor. We're to be boiling hot on fire in our zeal to serve the Lord Jesus. So, how are you doing in your service of King Jesus? How's your fervor. Are you still on fire? Or in your service of Jesus, have you become more like a sloth? It doesn't matter what your service to him is. It doesn't matter what capacity that takes on, whether it's loving your family and serving and taking care of your family, loving one another and caring for one another within the body of Christ leading your family spiritually, serving the church in whatever way you do, teaching children, teaching youth, teaching adults, vacuuming. It doesn't matter what your service to him is. Have you begun to just go through the motions? Have you lost your zeal in serving Jesus? Has that raging fire which once burned brightly for Jesus become a a flickering flame? If so... And to whatever degree that may be the case for you in any one of these, the answer for all of us is to go back to chapters 1 through 11. We're reminded that after Paul finishes that glorious explanation of the gospel, the very first verse of chapter 12, he says, in view of the mercies of God, we are to offer our lives as a sacrifice. Not being conformed to the pattern we see in the world, but be transformed, live differently. Why? In view of those mercies. In light of who we were apart from God. In light of what God did to graciously rescue us, we must never leave that church. We must never graduate from the gospel. The glories of God displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ are what will bring our fire back. So do you want your fervor for Jesus to return? Do you want your zeal in serving him to come back? Then go back to the cross and recall what he did for you there. 
what I'm going to say in the, in, the, in the closing moments of our time together this morning has bearing on what we talked about last week and what we're going to talk about as we work through the remainder of this passage, verses 9 through 21. Jesus crucified and resurrected is both our fuel for these kinds of transformations. He has enabled these transformations to actually be able to take place. And he is the very goal of these transformations in our life. When we return to the cross and we behold his gracious love for us displayed in his sacrifice on the cross. Church, that fuels us to want these transformations to take place in us. We don't do these transformations so that we'll clean ourselves up and make ourselves acceptable to God. Chapters 1 through 11 made it abundantly clear the only way for us to be acceptable to God is through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf so that by faith in him we are clothed with his righteousness and forgiven our sin. And knowing that, being convinced of that, fuels our desire to want to be changed in these ways so that he's glorified through us. Then we're going to want to love one another with brotherly affection. Then we're going to want to lead out and outdo one another in showing honor. Then we're going to want to have this kind of fervency of our spirit and be on fire in our service for him. It, it fuels our transformation. But Jesus also enabled our transformation He enables it. When Jesus died in our place and rose again, he purchased our freedom from sin. And and, and not, not just freedom from the punishment of our sin, but the shackles of sin in our daily walks. Now we are free to not sin. Whereas before, we didn't have that freedom. Before Jesus saved us, we could only sin. But now, by the grace of God, now we are set free from sin's grip and we are made able to obey him in these exhortations that Paul is giving here and elsewhere throughout the word of God. He has enabled us to be changed in this way. But not only does Jesus fuel our transformation and has enabled our transformation by grace through faith, but he is the very goal of our transformation. He's the goal of it. Why are we to be transformed in these ways? Why do we read passages of Scripture like this? Why do we belabor these kinds of exhortations where we're to look different and feel different and act different? So that, as Paul told us back in Romans 15, we collectively might be an acceptable offering of worship and praise to the God who so greatly deserves that from us. So again, Last week, this week, next week, the following week, as we unpack these exhortations. If you see yourself falling short, we all are going to fall short in some of these exhortations. Some of them we're doing great on. Some of them we're knocking out of the park. Some we're doing okay. Some we're just flatly failing at. And when the Holy Spirit reveals that to you, repent, turn from that. But then Return to the cross and see your Redeemer. See Jesus and his gracious love for you and let that fuel your obedience. Knowing that his finished work on the cross has also enabled 
your obedience. And let your motivation for this transformation in your life be for the glory of God. To offer yourselves, to offer ourselves collectively as a church to him as an acceptable sacrifice of praise and honor and glory. Because we know, we know he deserves that. Let's pray.